0: All right, we're in Mark today, Mark chapter 2, as we continue to walk through this series. Uh, One of the things that I think is pretty evident in our culture today, we're seeing more and more, it's nothing new, it's been since the garden, but we're seeing more and more of this almost an entitlement kind of feel, right? Somebody owes me something, and while there is real injustice in our world that Christians should be uh, desiring to address, there seems to be more of a cultural shift in a very unhealthy, self-centered way. And if we live life that way, that's, we're not immune. As Christians, we're not immune to that. We, we deal with that too. Somebody owes me something. If we live life that way, always thinking that I deserve more than what I really have, then what that's going to result in is a life of struggle and anger and discontentment. But if we begin to see everything good that we have is really a kind gift from the Lord, well, then we're going to live lives of gratitude. And that changes everything. There's an Old Testament story from the life of King David that I think helps illustrate this. The the king that came before David was King Saul. You remember him. Started off great, ended terrible. And one of the things that King Saul did, even though he claimed to love David, was Saul was constantly trying to kill David because David was the next in line and Saul didn't want to give up his throne. And so David, blessed of the Lord, a charactered man at that time, did not raise his hand against Saul, ran from him, stayed safe, and even became best friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. And they became such good friends, David made a covenant with Jonathan. Before David ever became king, he said, Jonathan, look, I know your dad's trying to kill me like every day, but you're my best friend. And I'll tell you this, when God, when God makes me king, I'm going to pledge to you. I'm going to watch out for all of your descendants. I'm going to provide for them so you don't need to worry about it. Well, many years later, David is king. He's on the throne. And at that time, there was one descendant of Jonathan left in the land, and his name was Mephibosheth. Now, life was probably tough enough for this guy with that kind of name, but this, he, he had some added trials. When he was a baby, his nursemaid was carrying him and fell with him And so his legs were crippled for life. And of course, in biblical times, that meant for a man who could not work to then be relegated to abject poverty. Well, Mephibosheth, he knew he was the last remaining descendant of Jonathan. And granddad Saul, who tried to kill the current king, surely King David was going to one day clean house, he thought. Mephibosheth probably thought, my days are numbered The day is going to come where the king calls for me and disposes of me to be sure no more enemies of the throne remain. Well, that day came. They sent for him. David wants to see you. Now, Mephibosheth knew this could not be good. So he comes into the throne room, humble, saying, Who am I, O king, that you would call for a dead dog like me? concerned he was going to be judged. But David wasn't interested in judgment. David remembered his covenant. And so he did not kill Mephibosheth, just the opposite. He brought him into his home. He clothed him and he fed him. Who was once thought to be an enemy of the king is now in the king's family, eating at the king's table. Now it doesn't take much of a stretch to see the gospel embedded in that story, does it? We, you and I, were once enemies of the king. You and I were crippled from a fall as well, the fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve, living as outcasts outside of the covenant of God because of our sin. And yet one day, the king called for you. If you're a Christian today... That means before you ever knew it, before you ever recognized him, he recognized you. And he called for you. He summoned you. But not to judge you. He summoned you because of the covenant that you and I were chosen to be part of. That the king, instead of judgment, the king showed us mercy. And who were once on the outside, now we are welcomed into his family, and we are called friends of God. What an amazing blessing you and I have received in Christ. Now, as we've walked through the book of Mark, we've been getting to see Jesus. Mark is, is unveiling who Jesus is, one story at a time. And in our text today, there are going to be two stories that really point to us the same thing, and it's this Jesus is the friend of sinners. He draws near not to those who think they deserve it, but to those who know they don't. Let's read together Mark chapter 2 verses 1 to 17 and then we'll pray and ask for the Lord's help. And when he Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you together for the gift of your word. It is in your word, under your word, that we worship you today. And it is in the truth of this word and revelation of who you are, Jesus, that we find comfort and encouragement and hope so Lord, would you open our eyes and our hearts to the truth that lies here, that only comes from you, that we would find hope in you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Two very encouraging aspects about Jesus we're going to focus on from this text today. One is Jesus can forgive sin because he's God. And secondly, Jesus befriends sinners because he's good. So first, Jesus can forgive sin because he's God. As we've walked through the book of Mark, we've seen on clear display Jesus' authority, haven't we? His authority in preaching and teaching, unlike the scribes. His authority over sickness and disease as he heals people. His authority over the devil and demonic spirits. Jesus' authority to call men who don't know him and they drop everything and follow him. At the same time, we've also seen Jesus' amazing love drawing near to the hurting and the outcasts and the untouchables, spending time with the ignored and the rejected and the hopeless. And the more that Jesus did miracles, the more crowds would gather. Now, one of the things you'll see in Mark as we go through this is that crowds were typically not considered a good thing. As Mark is telling the story. Crowds are more often depicted as a hindrance to the work that Jesus was called to because most of the time the crowds were those pressing in wanting a miracle but not really wanting the gospel. Wanting something from Jesus without really a desire to turn to him and follow him. And so we see here crowds forming again. They got message, they got word that Jesus went home which probably meant his home base at Peter's house in Capernaum. Now here in this private residence, a crowd has formed, and we're not just talking about a few extra people. We're talking about wall to wall, shoulder to shoulder, standing room only, in the doorway, spilling out into the streets. And Jesus is in the midst of them teaching. Now picture that moment, the Son of God. Expounding on the good news of the kingdom, expounding on the wonderful news that God is bringing sinners near. Every ear attentive, in raptured silence, listening to one who they had never heard teach like this before. And the middle of that moment comes a scratching on the roof. Now, Jesus was kind of used to interruptions by now. Remember a few days ago, he was preaching and a screaming demon-possessed man barged in. So Jesus wasn't thrown by this. But it's very likely Jesus stops and looks up as debris is falling from the roof. And of course, everyone else is going to stop and look up too. I just picture this awkward moment. Everybody's stopping and staring at the roof, wondering what's happening. Now, I like to imagine the people who got there early so they could get a front row seat, they were probably just a little perturbed. Like, oh, no, you don't. You're not not breaking in line. I got here at dawn so I could get near the master, and you're going to think you're going to plop down in front of me. Well, if that was going on, and if this was Peter's house, imagine what Peter's thinking. Hey, that's my roof, guys. Well, if the complaints were going on, they probably all were silenced when they saw that stretcher being lowered down and a paralyzed man laying on it. He just wanted to be healed like anybody in his state would want from Jesus. And he happened to have friends that loved him so, that they risked personal safety, they risked per- the public embarrassment in front of everybody, and they risked getting in trouble with damaging property just to get their friend in front of Jesus. Look how Jesus responds in verse five. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. That's that's touching. But if we're honest, it's just a little bit confusing, right? I mean, after all, instead of saying, you're healed, The first thing Jesus says is, You're forgiven. Everyone else saw what was obvious the withered legs that needed healing. But Jesus saw what they could not. He saw a heart that needed saving. And that's true for every single one of us. We all have needs, and those needs are important important to us, important to God. Whether that's a physical healing or emotional healing, we have mental needs, we have relational needs, we have financial needs, we're in need, and God absolutely cares about that. But I think what we should draw, at least from this part, is there is no greater need that we have than our need for a Savior. There is no greater need that we have than to have our sins forgiven. Now, we don't know anything about this paralyzed man's life beyond what we're told here. And we should not assume that his sins are any worse than the sins of the friends who carried him in, even though Jesus just kind of publicly forgave him. Here's what we should know. All sin is an offense to God. We have all sinned and fallen short of his glory. We are all in the same boat together. Those who look like they've got it all together and those who clearly don't. Those who attend church every Sunday and those who have never assembled on a Sunday with Christians in their life. We are all in the same boat born into sin, born in need of a Savior, born in need of mercy being shown to us. Now, We see that the seriousness of sin is being addressed before the seriousness of sickness is, which tells us that our sin against a holy God can only be forgiven by God. And as beautiful as this is, that this man's sin is being forgiven, not everyone thinks it's quite so beautiful. Mark now introduces us to a recurring enemy of Jesus we're going to see throughout this gospel. And that. Those are the religious leaders. There are just a few of them in the crowd that day, and they heard with their own ears that Jesus said to this man, your sins are forgiven, and they were completely appalled. They didn't say it out loud, but thought to themselves, only God can forgive sins. Exactly. God just did. But they didn't recognize God in the flesh standing right in front of them. And I find it very telling that these these religious leaders, Mark makes it clear, they didn't say this out loud. They thought it in their hearts. But Jesus heard it just as if they said it. As much as Jesus saw the heart of the paralyzed man, he sees the heart of these religious leaders and he decides to answer their inward thoughts out loud. The end of verse eight, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he did. Although I would like to imagine he didn't just calmly walk, I'm imagining him leaping and dancing all the way home. And the people were amazed because they knew only God could do something like this. Only God, in an instant, could heal a damaged spinal cord and cause a man to walk. Only God, in an instant, could take atrophied muscles and immediately make them strong again. That's what the crowd focused on. But what they likely missed was the more important miracle. Only God in an instant could forgive a lifetime of sin. That miracle is the greatest miracle in all of the Bible. Greater than the parting of the Red Sea, greater than Jesus walking on water, greater than raising people from the dead, is taking a heart, hopelessly lost, forgiving, cleansing, and reconciling that person to God. You hear a lot of people say, if God's real, why don't we see miracles today? You're looking at one. Look at each other. You're looking at a miracle. The greatest miracle that we could ever find You're sitting next to. You are one. Sinners saved by grace. Jesus looked at this paralyzed man. And Jesus looked forward to the cross that he would hang on. And Jesus forgave the very sin that he would pay for. Now remember, what what was Jesus doing before the roof started getting torn apart? What was he doing? He was teaching. He was preaching most likely what he was teaching and preaching in other places in Mark the kingdom of god the messiah has come sins forgiven that was seemingly lost on this crowd and it was certainly an offense to the religious which i think is a timely reminder my fellow churched people my fellow christians I find that the longer we serve the Lord, the more likely it is to be tempted to take the gospel for granted, to forget what we've been saved from. And because we hear it so often, we can be tempted when we hear the good news to say, yes, but. Yes, God has forgiven me of my sin. Yes, the cross is amazing, but. What about that sickness that needs to be healed? What about that marriage that needs to be repaired? What about my kids? What about my job? As we've said, God cares about all of those things. And I promise you, he is in the midst of all of those things. But let us not be tempted to see the good news of the gospel and ever respond, yes, but... Because the gospel is the answer to it all. It is the good news of the gospel that draws us near to the one that has called us. Not because of what we could do for him or what we deserve, but because of the goodness of the one who was called. And in all of the circumstances of your life, in the middle of the trial that you might be in right this minute, God cares about what's going on around you But bank on this, he's always more intent to change what's going on in you. He's after our hearts. And that's that's a wonderful thing. That's good news for those who have not yet trusted in Jesus. Because it's it's the announcement, it's the good news for you, that Jesus wants to forgive your sin too. That you don't have to clean things up. He'll do that. You come to him just like you are. Trust in him. And that's good news for those of us who have trusted in Christ because it's that helpful reminder that of all the needs I see in my life, my greatest need has already been met in my sin being forgiven and being brought near to God. What else is going to be too hard for God in my life? Nothing. Jesus can forgive sin and make us new every day because he is God. And secondly, we see that Jesus befriends sinners because he is good. Now, there's a very dramatic change of scenery. If this were a movie, it would be very stark. We go from this commotion of the crowd to Jesus walking on the beach. Now, Capernaum, it was located on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, And it was right in the middle of a lot of shipping and commerce. A lot of business would would take place in Capernaum, which made it a great place for the Romans to set up tax-collecting booths. Now, either because of a shortage of soldiers or because of strategy, the Romans didn't just put their soldiers at every port and every intersection. They actually started recruiting the locals, recruiting some of the conquered to collect money, on behalf of the conquering. Now, it's important to stop and ask this question. What kind of person would volunteer to collect money from your own people on behalf of the ones that have conquered you, that are occupying your country, that are oppressing and enslaving your people? Ooh, ooh, I'll collect money for them. What kind of person would do that? The kind of person who loves money more than people. The kind of person who wants power more than they want honor. The kind of person who would ultimately trade his own family to be a little more comfortable. That's the tax collector of Jesus' time. They were traitors to their own people. And by the Jews, they were considered the lowest of the low. The religious Jews considered them unclean. They would even be ostracized and often disowned by their own family. Jesus, he's taking a walk on the beach. He's teaching. And he comes across one of these despised tax collectors. His name's Levi. We also know him as Matthew. And like Jesus did with a previous walk on the beach where he's just calling fishermen and they're dropping their nets and following. He looks at this despised traitor of his people and says, follow me. And just as miraculous, Levi leaves his tax booth, leaves his wealth, leaves his favor with the Romans and follows Jesus. Now, Mark doesn't give us much time to just kind of sit in awe of of what's going on here. But I think it is important to ask the question, uh, time out. Doesn't Jesus know this guy? Doesn't he realize how awful he is? I mean, yeah, we get calling, you know, blue collar fishermen and I can do something with those guys. They got some potential. But this guy... Surely, this guy would be the one that Jesus would be pointing his finger at and and, and preaching to, not, not inviting him to come with him. Of course, Jesus knows Matthew. Jesus knows Matthew better than Matthew knows himself. Because this is not about the deserving of the one being called, it's about the love of the one doing the calling. Professor and author Trevin Wax says this, hell is full of people who think they deserve heaven. Heaven is full of people who know they deserve hell. Remember, if we think we deserve God's blessings, we will live a life discontented, angry, angry, upset frustrated selfish but by god's grace if we stop and recognize everything i have everything i've been given is a good gift from a good god well then gratitude will be the measure and i will be more likely to give god glory Yes, Matthew did not deserve to be called by Jesus. And neither do we. It's not in our worth or our potential that Jesus saved us. It is about the one who saves. He is good. And not only in saving us, but drawing near to us, loving us and rescuing the rejected, befriending the outcast not because of who we are but because of who he is now we could just relish in that all day but mark changes scenery on us again now we find ourselves in the middle of a party it's a feast and what's remarkable about it which is likely matthew's house now it is full of tax collectors Man, we we've just jumped out of the frying pan into the fire, right? Full of tax collectors and sinners, the Bible says. And where do we find Jesus? Is he standing in the middle of the room preaching at this feast? Nope. Maybe he's over in the corner keeping a safe religious distance from the wrong crowd. Nope. Jesus is right in the middle eating with them and I would like to imagine maybe even laughing with them. This is more shocking than what the Jews saw before. If if they were upset that Jesus claims to forgive sin, oh, he's just gone too far now, sitting in the middle of tax collectors, the worst of the worst, eating with them, breaking bread with them. Now, this is significant because for the Jewish culture, to have a meal with somebody wasn't just some nice social event. Breaking bread together had a sign of covenant implied. There was intimacy involved. When you sat down at the table and ate with another that you've invited, it was a form of calling that person a friend. How could Jesus, from the religious viewpoint, a rabbi, a teacher, a Jew, how could he even be seen with tax collectors, much less break bread with them? Look at verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They actually said it out loud this time. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, just want to draw your attention to something here. Notice Jesus didn't defend his fellow feast Eaters here, he, the people he's surrounding himself with. He didn't say, when the religious said that, he didn't say, wait, 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 you just wait a minute. These these guys, if, once you get to know them, they're not that bad. They're actually kind of cool. He doesn't say that. He actually, in, in a way, agrees with the religious critics. He's like, yep, bunch of sinners. You're exactly right. But that's who needs me. Yes, they are Sick in their soul, but the great physician is here, and I'm gonna make them well. I didn't come for the righteous, but I came to call the sinner. The religious thought they were righteous. The religious thought, by all of their actions and all of their obedience to the law, that made them worthy of first-line attention from God. But notice who Jesus draws near, those who know they don't deserve it. That's who Jesus draws near. Maybe you feel or have felt in your life, I have simply done too much wrong. I simply have gone too far. Or maybe you're sitting here as a person who has repented, you're trusting in Christ, but maybe even coming and gathering on a Sunday is a struggle because you feel like you're not worthy to be here. Can I tell you, you are the person Jesus draws near. And can I tell you, we all struggle in that capacity. When we think deeply enough about our own state and where we were when Jesus saved us and where we were this morning and needing of God's grace every single day, I struggle thinking, Lord, am am I worthy? And I love hearing that whisper from the Holy Spirit, no, and that's not the point. You're following the one who is. He's called you, not because of any gifts, any potential. Yes, we are made in God's image, and I don't want to diminish that, but you and I are Christians not because we got something right and everybody else got it wrong. It is because of a sovereign, loving Savior who drew sinners near to himself. These religious, they they wanted to be the ones on the inside, We could even see some jealousy and envy going on. This teacher, the whispers about him being Messiah, what's he doing in the middle of all these sinners? But it's the religious who are left on the outside of the feast. They thought they deserved it, and so they didn't receive it. To admit we're sick implies we know we need a doctor. To know we're not worthy draws us to the one who is. Religion focuses on what I need to do. Grace focuses on what Jesus has already done. And with Matthew and this crowd of tax collectors, notice we're not told of anyone repenting before Jesus came and ate with them. He showed up anyway. Jesus apparently wasn't waiting for all these tax collectors to leave their jobs and and get up from their tax booth like Matthew did. He still eats with them. He still draws near to them because of who he is. Now, that's not to say repentance is not important. It is important. You know that. But the point here is that Jesus knew us before we knew him. Jesus drew near to us before we repented. Scripture's clear. God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died. It doesn't end there. Christ died for us. Our repentance is important, but that was not what initiated the covenant. God did. He drew near to us sinners before we ever repented. Jesus does not wait for us to clean up our act before he loves us. It's in the middle of our mess. It's in the drowning in sin and shame that Jesus rescues us, and he calls us to be his. So if you feel sick this morning in your soul, run to the physician. If you think you're too far gone for his forgiveness, you're the very one he's drawing to himself to show you just how good he is. Now, we know as a church, we don't want to just be inward with all of this. We want to ask the question, when when I see the mercy and the the friendship I have with God and, and how I should be overwhelmed with gratitude, not just in this moment, but the rest of my life, what should I do with this? Yes, we should worship. Yes, we should fellowship with one another. But shouldn't we be turning that outward? Shouldn't we take... As we're following the master, as we're following the friend of sinners, shouldn't we take that example and become a friend to sinners? A friend to the non Christians in your life? A friend to the lowest of the low, as they would be deemed by the world? I think we should. Now, there's wisdom and discernment here, isn't there? We often talk about two ditches to avoid, two extremes. So as we're turning this mercy outward, as we're befriending those who do not yet know Christ, two extremes I would caution you against. One extreme is we befriend people who are not Christians and then we slowly find ourselves being influenced instead of doing the influencing. We start recognizing our temptation to not speak the truth in love to start agreeing with and affirming things that are contrary to God's word. Jesus has called us to be a light in the darkness. That means we'll have to go into darkness but don't stumble into the darkness unless your light is shining or else you'll fall. But the other extreme that we should avoid is we've become so insular that the only friends we have are Christians. The only people we hang around with are those who agree with everything and don't disagree with us and are just like us. That is not what we're called to. Christian fellowship, like right here and in other ways as a church, is vital, but in a way that should encourage us and strengthen us to be able to go out and befriend those who do not yet know Christ that co-worker, that family member, that neighbor. Not to befriend them as a project, but as a person made in God's image who is in need of the same grace that you and I need every day. Jesus stands ready to welcome the sinner, but Jesus stands ready to welcome them through our witness because they don't need to only hear about Jesus is love. They need to see it in action through us. One commentator puts it this way. The call to follow Jesus will be extended to those who are stigmatized and assumed to be beyond the reach of religion's sanctification. They do not repent first and then receive the call. The call brings them to repentance when they respond. Instead of the Lord laughing at the wicked, as the psalmist talks about. The Lord laughs with the wicked who turn to him. Jesus has not rejected you. He has called you. And through faith in him, you and I are no longer outcasts and enemies. We are friends of God. Now he laughs with you. He sings over you. And he smiles at you. Church, live in the good of that. Live in the gratitude that should come from knowing his grace. And live in such a way that we are welcoming others to his table as he has welcomed us. Let's pray. Jesus, we... Are in fresh awe of you and the mercy you have shown us once your enemies now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you, and as Lord as the gratitude for that grows deeper in our hearts, would you cause us to reach further with our witness that where we are tempted to then respond as these scribes to to reject others, and to feel worthy. Lord, remind us in your gracious way, we are unworthy to be called sons and daughters of the king, but we are by your grace. Help us to share that mercy with others. Help us to see others added to your church, to your kingdom, that your glory would resound across the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.